Uh, you guys have the best stores in this area. I don't know. Uh, in Marietta, we just don't have that kind of resource. And I ran into with my bros here, we, we saw uh, the Husband Shopping Center. Did you see that? It's, it's just down the street by the 99, uh, where it's a woman can choose a husband from among many men. It's an amazing place. It has six floors, and the men increase in positive attributes with each floor that you go up. But if you uh, basically choose any man from that floor, you can. But if you go up a floor, you can't go back down again. So that's kind of the rule. And then there's, uh, I, I read an article about this particular place, and uh, the woman describes her experience. She says, on the first floor, the sign read, floor one. These men have jobs. That's what the sign said. And she reads the sign. She goes, well, that's better than my last boyfriend, but I wonder what's above. So she went up to the second floor, and the floor number two said, these men have jobs and love kids. And she thought, wow, that's great, but I wonder what's further up. She goes to the third floor, and the third floor sign, as she gets off the elevator, said, these men have jobs. They also love kids, and they're extremely good-looking. Wow. She says, that's better, but I wonder what's upstairs. The fourth floor sign read, Floor number four, these men have jobs, love kids, are extremely good looking, and help with housework. Wow! Very tempting. But uh, there's got to be more, so she heads up another flight. Fifth floor, the sign says this, floor number five, these men have jobs, they love kids, are extremely good looking, and help with the housework, and have a strong romantic streak. <laughs> She's gagging like I am. Oh, mercy! <clears throat> Just think, wow, what's next? So she goes up to the sixth floor, and the sixth floor sign says this, floor number six, your visitor 1,012,345 to this floor. There are no men on this floor. This floor exists solely as proof that women are impossible to please. There you go. <laughs> Thank you for shopping at the husband mark. <clears throat> now, I don't think that's true. The wives of this church have contented themselves with far less than the top floor. I, I you know, that's Amazing. <laughs> So, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> oh, I couldn't help myself. So anyway, do you consider yourself a man? Because a man, uh, if you can take this quiz with me, it's five questions. You give yourself a point for each one. Go ahead, score yourself if you would. Number one, do you enjoy thinking about absolutely nothing for long periods of time? <laughs> Number one. Number two, are you capable, give yourself a point if that's true, are you incapable of finding the milk in the fridge even while you're staring directly at it? That's number two. Number three, do you refer to a team of professional athletes who have no idea who you are as we? Do you do that? All right, that's, give yourself a point. Number four, can you effortlessly win at every women's sport? Oh, man, can't believe I said that. And then number five, Number five, can you navigate unfamiliar roads, but you are hopelessly lost in a mall? Okay, give yourself a point for that. So if you got five, you're definitely a man. Uh, if you got four, you're a dude. Three, you have some masculine vibes. But if two are below, there's a small chance you're a woman. Okay, so we live in a society, and you recognize it, and I'm making light of it, but understand the role of a man and God's design for a man are really being redefined. And masculinity has been under attack for a long time. Men are looking absolutely for something solid. And the only thing that actually is solid is God's Word. Amen? And so that's what we want to look at. For men, centuries, they've expected to be handsome 
and a provider, a courageous warrior. Uh, they've expected to be the protector, the decision maker. But even that's kind of uh, being modified today. So some of the modifications are overwhelming. What they are is you need to be good looking but not aware of it, intelligent but not heady, mechanical but not grimy, masculine but not overmastering, <gasps> firm but not inflexible, self assured but not conceited, loyal but not patronizing, ambitious but not pa- a workaholic, aggressive but not pushy, gentle but not feminine, knowledgeable but not a show off, agreeable but not a yes man, even tempered but not boring, generous but not extravagant, relaxed but not lazy, courageous but not foolish. How do you like that? Wow. And gender now is intentionally being written, written. And so therefore, a lot of men are confused. But the good news is Jesus Christ is not confused. <laughs> he made the world. He created men. He created women. And he made each of the two sexes, only two, with his specific design. Uh, no man, and here's the challenge right out the gate, can actually be biblical today unless you're willing to battle. This is a war now. And you have to fight. To become a biblical man, you've got to fight against the pressure of feminism. To be a biblical man, you've got to fight against the confusion of the media and the attacks of the media, the attacks of the LGBTQ, the millennial even desire for ease and laziness of your own flesh that wants to be lazy. You've got to battle the enemy as he seeks to remove you as a threat. You may even have to battle at times your own bride or your children in order to function the way that God intends you to function. Not as a dictator, not as one who's always right, not as the guy who everybody has to, you know, kind of toe the line, but as a godly man. But here the good news is, if you have submitted to Jesus Christ and you have trusted Him alone for your salvation, your sin has fallen on Christ and been punished there by God. He's covered you with His righteousness, which means you have the robe of righteousness. You can stand in His presence now and forever, perfect because of what He did, not what you did, justified. Plus, you've been regenerated. That means you have a new heart that wants to obey God's Word. You want to pursue. That's Romans 6.17, friends. He gives you a heart that wants to obey. Then you will want His design. And so today is a great day for us because men need to understand the design for women and women, Christian women, need to understand God's design for men. Why? Because again, it reflects God's character as we've already talked about with the ladies, that God is triune, that there's a oneness being pursued as well as a uniqueness in your role and function. Also, God made men responsible to lead their homes and lead the church, just kind of a way of a funny illustration, we occasionally have outreach events at our church, and we do men's events, and we have an inordinate amount of police officers at our church. About every other guy is packing. Okay, so, interesting enough, we'll get these officers, and we'll go, and now we can't do this now because it's against the law in Southern California, but we would go out and we would shoot, have a shoot fest, all right? You, you guys probably have guns at some point. Um, we had 22s and 38s and, you know, 45 pistols and then 22 rifles and then all the way up and bazookas and tanks and nuclear, you know, I just, and every officer controls that table. And so safety first, uh, we have a great, and we serve meat. We don't, no salad. There's no forks or knives or spoons. It's just meat. Okay. And, but the two things we say whenever we get together and we say, invite all your unsafe friends because unsafe guys like guns too. And we'll say two things. And literally, this is what we say. Number one, we believe that men 
lead their homes and lead the church. And number two, and we share the gospel. We tell them about what Christ has done on our behalf. That's it. That we just, that's all. And they know that's what we're going to do. We're gonna, and it's very clear. We might spend five, ten minutes really explaining the truth of who Christ is and what he did and that he is the God. Man. We go through all of that. But we always say that first phrase. We believe that men lead the church and lead their homes. And we have had more men come to our church from that phrase than any other. Men are desirous to fill their responsibilities if they're indwelt with the Spirit of God. And again, not overpowering. Uh, I think you're going to get a really good look at what that means. But one pastor said it this way, in a day when boys act like girls, men act like boys, and women act like men, we desperately need a biblical understanding of God's design. Amen? So therefore, are you ready? Are you ready to battle? Are you ready to lead? Are you ready to love like Christ? Are you ready to live by faith and not fear? Now understand, you already saw that the older women are to train the younger women in Titus. You saw that, correct? The presupposition of the New Testament is discipleship. The presupposition, the great commission in Matthew 28, when it says to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you're to baptize them, you're to incorporate them within the church, you're to teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And here's the capper of the Great Commission. This is just a whole sermon in and of itself. It says, until the end of the age. Friends, are we at the end of the age yet? So therefore, discipleship and the Great Commission is for you. You're in this gathering today. You need to understand that God expects you to be in the discipleship process. That one of the means of grace is not just the preached word. It is also investing into one another with intentional relationships. Intentional, write it down, relationships for the purpose of coming to Christ or becoming like Christ or growth or salvation, sanctification. You need to be in that. That is part of what we are as believers. Not only do we function with the one another's in the church family, there's about 44 of them in the New Testament, love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, etc. But we are to intentionally invest. That's why it says older women, plural, are to be training the younger women, plural. You get to 1 Peter 5, and the young men are to submit to the older men. It's one of the main commands there. And it's basically you're in this relationship with an older guy, older spiritual guy, or guys, and you're learning these truths. You hear them from the Word. You hear them laid out. You can re-listen to it over and over again, but you need that mechanics of intentional relationship of that burning desire. And you have the opportunity to do that at this church. It's one of the few churches on planet Earth that actually is committed to discipleship. I've literally gone to churches and taught on discipleship and walked away knowing they weren't going to apply it. And you are doing it, and therefore you have an accountability to jump in. Get involved. Get engaged. Because you learn this in this environment. Uh, Faith Bible Church, uh, I've been there for 17 years. We started 17 years ago with discipleship. We were about 120 people. And we decided, you know what? Uh, 5 o'clock in the morning, we're all going to show up. Guys showed up. Uh, later on, the gals started showing up. It was like 120 gals in our house. It was crazy. We're a set-up takedown church still. And so we're in this mode and we just launched in, and men were investing in each other. It was imperfect. Guys messed up and through the process, but they're like, you know what? We want to grow. We want to be like Christ. We want to see the means of grace, and one of the means of grace is, look, okay, 
This week I was impatient with my wife. You know, pray for me. How, give me some ideas on how I can apply the truth in a way that would cause me to love her the way she deserves to be loved. Does that make sense? You're working with each other, and it's okay. Has anyone in this room arrived, yes or no? Oh, wait, wait, say it like you mean it. Have you arrived yet? No, then you're in process. And guess what? Steve Swartz is in process. He'll be the first guy to tell you that. And man, I am way in process. And I need to grow. And I need men in my life. And I get to meet with men all the time. Every Monday, every Tuesday, I'm with men. And we're growing together. And working out our salvation together so that we can be glorifying Him. It's part of what God has called the Christian world to be a part of, and we've lost the Great Commission. We've seen it with missions. We've lost it in relationship. It's gone. You need to recapture it, and you need to get with men and grow with men. I'm telling you, it will transform your life. It's one of the means of grace, and that's what's the supposition here. So you're now in Titus 2, I hope. And we're going to look at what God has put in place. The, the Cretans are having a hard time putting their beliefs into behavior. So that's happening here. And in verse 1, Paul tells in chapter 2 this sound doctrine or healthy doctrine. Sound meaning healthy. Verses 2 and 3, he describes the qualities for the over the 60 crowd to pursue, calls the older women to train the younger women. And verses then 4 and 5 in God's design. And then Paul describes the role of the younger men in verses 6-8. through eight. And he calls Titus, who's there, and Titus is a young man, to pursue God's design for young men with them. So they're all together. He includes and rolls Titus into this. So verses 6-8 through eight represent the male qualities that should have already been down for you seniors. Young men are to go after. These are traits that should be on every single woman's list. And these are the character qualities. What are they? Mentally, you're to be sensible. Visually, an example of good deeds. Theologically, pure in doctrine. Socially, we're to be dignified. And verbally, we're to be sound in speech. And we're going to jump a little bit when we get to theologically pure in doctrine over to Ephesians 5, and we'll get back to it as well. So number one in your outline, mentally, men are to be sensible. Titus 2.6. Likewise, like you did with the gals, Urge the young men to be sensible, thinking men, making decisions using spirit-controlled mind, pleading for the wisdom of James in all kinds of circumstances. Now, I know all of you have been to a sporting event, right? And at a sporting event, there's always three kinds of people. There are people who make things happen. Those are the players on the field making it all happen. Then there's the people who watch what's happening. They're in the stands watching it. But there's another kind of person there in the stands and they're the third kind of person. They don't know what's happening. Anybody with me on that? They don't know. Well, that's what Paul is saying. You can't be that guy. you got to know what's happening. And even in our life in a fast lane society, being sensible means you refuse to live in a state of disorientation. Uh, statistics actually tell us there are three stages when a men misbehave. The first one is when men are young. The second stage is when men are very old. And the third stage is when men are between young and old, when they misbehave. So we need to make sure that we're sensible. We exercise common sense, wisdom. Uh, we're not living by our emotions. And that's the, the temper of our day is emotions. 
And the word sensible in Greek means, uh, the root word comes from safe and sound. It's sound judgment, it's common sense, it's self-control. It has this idea of self-governance. Listen, you want to lead your family, you better lead yourself first. Lead your family, there's got to be personal leadership yourself. Uh, in fact, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32, it emphasizes, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit, wow, his own life, self-control, sensibility, then he who captures a city, that's a big deal in the ancient world. Uh, young men are not to be like Alexander the Great, right? Who could conquer the entire world in 10 years, but he couldn't control himself and died at age 33 in a drunken stupor. It's like, no, we need to be those who are control. You want to lead your home? Then control yourself. Sensibly saved men are in control They're of themselves. They, they live a life marked with common sense wisdom. Is it important? The Holy Spirit thought so because He made this the number one attribute that every man needs to be putting into place. Sensible men. The reason it's repeated so often is you know on Crete they were lacking sensibility, correct? You already know that. They were liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. So their mouths and their behavior and their appetites and even their understanding of truth was being undermined. They weren't sensible. And so therefore, instead of spiritually controlling their lives by obediently believing and then heeding the Word of God, they were living by their feelings, by desires by their thinking, by opinion, by news. Uh, you know, Satan, he can't take saving faith away, right? When you're in Christ, you're secure. Can I hear an amen? When you're genuinely in Christ, you are. But he can obscure the content of your faith. And if you're not standing on right interpretations of Scripture, you're going to slip into wrong thinking, errant beliefs, and aberrant behavior, which is why it's so essential to be in a strong Bible teaching church where your preaching is based on the author's intended message of the text. So important. So understand, this is what's behind what Paul is talking about here with sensibility. The sensible young man needs to be in control of himself in order to direct his own life and lead others as God expects. He cannot be like Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus is classic, right? Before he got to america he didn't know where he was going and then second when he got there he didn't know where he was and the scary part when he got back he didn't know where he'd been correct that's where you can't be just like an orderly businessman kind of orders his day out plans his day or even a a really good construction worker he's going to look at the original blueprint he's going to know exactly what he's got to do you need to plan you need to organize you need to think about the future for most men, this is deadly, but this is exactly what you got to do. So how do you, you know, become sensible? Well, you develop a game plan, you develop some goals, some targets that you're going to aim at uh, through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of God's character, a sensible man sets up goals for prayer, for his study of Scripture, his ministry, who he's trying to reach for Christ and share the gospel with. He, he actually is writing it down he's thinking about he's praying about it who he's going to have mentor him who he's going to try to influence besides his wife and his children he sets goals concerning his spouse and his kids and his parents he tries to think biblically about all those things and what's most needed 
What does your wife most need in the home? She needs a stable husband. She needs this. She what do your kids need? In your home, if you're off-center with your money, your finances, you're in debt, you're maxed out on credit cards, there's no budget, there's no plan, it's your responsibility. This, we're going to see that with headship. You're the head of the home. You're responsible. You've got to stop following Adam. What did Adam do? Well, when he blew it, he took his defeat like a man and blamed his wife, right? No, actually, he blamed God and then also his wife, uh, the woman you gave me. Uh, we can't be that way. We've got to say, no, I'm responsible in this process. So the sensible single man has learned that relationships are not based on appearance, but character, faithfulness, even reputation. Proverbs 21, verse 1, a good name is to be chosen over great wealth. Favor is better than silver or gold. When you're looking for a life partner, again, we said it before, you're looking for someone who loves Christ more than you. Because you will be abundantly blessed by the overflow of that relationship. You look for a gal who's proven. You say, how do you know a gal is proven? Are you ready? This is pretty simple stuff. Does she disciple? That's parenting, so you know she's going to be a good parent. Does she function well as a daughter to her parents? Or is that totally out of sync? Because that's going to show you how it's going to function in marriage. Does she seek to share the gospel? You're going to know why she is a part of this planet, why God left her here. Does she minister her giftedness and service? She knows where she fits within the body of Christ. Those are things that you can see that manifest sensible behavior. Listen, here's the challenge for men. When you aim at nothing, you hit it every time. What are you aiming at? What are you targeting? You should have some measurable, achievable goals. I'll spend 30 minutes in the Word and Prayer. I'll encourage three people today. Uh, Biblical men, godly men, God's design for men is to be sensible. You accept the responsibility uh, making certain issues true and that you are working towards those biblical character qualities to be lived out within your home. Now, it's true that few women admit their age. Sadly, it's true that few men act their age. And so we want to be men who are sensible. The second quality that God gives us, verse 7, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Visually, men are to be an example of good deeds. Now, maybe you've seen, I've seen maybe two in my life, a NASCAR race, and it always starts with a pace car, right? And they set the pace for this block of cars that are going to have this massive 500-lap race or whatever. And that's what the husband is supposed to be. You're supposed to be a pace setter uh, for the example of good deeds. You're not complacent as a man and in your design of man and as a dad you pursue it you set a pace you practice what you preach you live it out before you lay down the law you're an example Um, in student ministries as a pastor i was working in that area for about 15 plus years the greatest difficulty that we had with students christian students or at least those who claim to know christ was christian parents who didn't pursue christ It was the most difficult challenge for those students. More than anything, more than drugs, more than, you know, extramarital sex, everything. That was the issue. So we need to be like, not like the obese doctor who tries to tell you how to lose weight. We need to not be like the bald man who tries to sell you hair restorer. 
we need to realize that whatever we want others to grow to be, we need to be first. And your influence is seen through your own life. Uh, my first son was born, and my mentor, John MacArthur, was there visiting us in the hospital. And he looked at me and he said this, Chris, just make sure you live the same at home as you do at church. He said, just live for Christ everywhere you are and you'll not have a problem because I know you're overwhelmed by this little bundle of Matthew John Mueller and I said you know make sure you just live that way and that's true men are called to live every aspect of their lives as an example that's what he's saying here and the word example is tupos where we get the word type from and a type was a first century die an image card out of a stone or even out of a wood or a dowel and it made an impression on a coin or it sealed a document. It was a tupos. And therefore, it was a pattern or an example or a model. And what Paul's calling Titus, as well as the young men, to be those who show themselves to be spiritual models that can be followed. That's what he's asking for. And imitated. Now, this isn't my note, so I've got to just make sure that it's a quick reference. When you go to Ephesians chapter 6, you say, well, well, who's responsible for the parenting of my home? You realize there's only two New Testament passages that actually speak about parenting. The rest of it's just a challenge to be discipling. And, and they're both directed at fathers. Fathers. Now, that's kind of freaking you out, maybe. You say, well, what it really meant to say was fathers and mothers. No, he says that in verse 2 of Ephesians 6. He uses fathers and mothers. So he says fathers only in verse 4. Well, what he meant to say was parents. Parents. No, no. He used that exact word in verse 1 of Ephesians 6. Speaking, children, obey your parents. When he said fathers, he meant what? Fathers. It's your responsibility to be the example. To lead in that process for your family. We're not talking about education here. We're talking about training your children. Training them to be like Christ to be one who would live out their faith and all that comes with that. So Paul calls young men to be examples of good deeds. Now we know salvation is by grace through faith alone. We also know that the faith that saves us never alone and that faith without works is dead and therefore uh, saving faith will result in works. And Ephesians 2 verse 10 tell you that God already knows the good works that He's determined already that you would live them out and produce in your life. But that does not negate your dependent obedience in pursuing them in order for you to actively produce good deeds as an example and a follow and a manifestation of Christ in your life. Listen, only God is good. And therefore, the only works that can truly be good are those done for Him, and watch this, by Him, through you. It's so important that the Holy Spirit actually exhorted the Cretans to do good deeds six times. And I made reference to this before, but let me highlight three of them. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says to be zealous for good deeds. Now this is all Christians, not just young men, but we're drawing this out in order to understand the challenge for young men to be an example of good deeds. And to be zealous for good deeds means, are you ready? Write it down. An enthusiastic fanatic who exerts himself earnestly to do good deeds. 
an enthusiastic fanatic. And then in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, it says, be ready for every good deed. That means you're willing and prepared for good deeds. You're thinking about good deeds all the time. Titus chapter 3, verse 8 says, you're to engage in good deeds, and that word means to busy yourself with good deeds. You're to be an example. You're to go after every day pursuing good deeds. When Paul wrote verse 7, when he says, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, that's an emphatic manner, which means in the Greek sentence it's first, so he's emphasizing it, and he's saying yourself, literally showing a model of good deeds. It's the Holy Spirit actually saying and reminding us how important it is for you, for you Titus, for you young men, do this. In other words, the word is show and it's ongoing. It's not random. It's not just occasional. It's a part of your life. When you're at home, when you're at work, when you're at church, you're manifesting. Well, how do you do that? Well, the godly young man knows for his good deed doing to be actually a regular part of his life, you probably ought to have regular ministry. Regular ministry in the church. You're responsible to fulfill every week. You say, oh, I don't want that commitment. Well, wait, this is what God has called us to. Minister our spiritual giftedness, manifest good deeds. Men who don't minister in the church don't understand the importance and impact of good deeds, what God has called you to do. You say, well, yeah, but I'm a leader. I'm a leader now. I don't need to do good deeds. Well, wait a minute. Titus, who's wrapped in here, he's an apostolic assistant. He's actually a missionary church planner who's there on Crete for about six more months. Paul says in chapter 3, come to me at this next season. And he calls this leader this incredibly important guy, right under an apostle, to be an example of good deeds. Even your witness in the world is powerfully enhanced by practicing good deeds. It's something that we do. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? So that the purpose, in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your what? good deeds as they observe them, Glorify God in the day of visitation. Both in the church and in the world, we're to be impacting others by the regular exercise of good deeds. This is why we're here. Not just the big up front good deeds, but the little unobserved secret card gift encouragement good deeds. Listen, friends, great opportunities and great occasions for serving God seldom happen but little ones surround us daily great opportunities not just the big upfront stuff but the everyday stuff now there's a negative side to this the negative side is men who exhort without example are pharisees don't be a pharisee father or a sadducee son who doesn't practice what they preach now again your children will be very gracious to you if you confess if you repent if you demonstrate when you fail to do so, which we will, but godly men instruct them in the Word and impact them with good deeds. The Spirit should be punching you in some sense if you're not merely looking for an occasional opportunity for good deed doing, but become an example, a tupas, a pattern so that others would follow you in your good deed doing. I'll use a young man at our church. So, we're at the beach. We have these beach days. And because we're a set-up takedown church, sometimes we have baptisms during the summer at the ocean. And we're sitting there and we're all talking. I'm talking to all the young men and we're goofing off. And there's this young guy. His name's Nikolai. And we're all just talking. And all of a sudden, Nikolai just head pops up. 
and, and then he just takes off. Like, he's, like, you know, you're in a group of guys, and he just kind of pops up, and pff, he's gone. You're like, what, what? What's going on? He saw a recent widow, four kids, four chairs, tons of beach stuff, and he just raced over there while we're all sitting there, you know, shucking and jiving. And he goes, I'm just going to serve her. He was an example of good deeds. A young man. Doesn't matter what your age. So that would be the challenge. Number three, theologically, men are to be pure in doctrine. This is a big one because this is how you lead. You can write that down, man. This is how you lead, being pure in doctrine. With purity in doctrine, he says, verse 7, when Paul writes the word pure, it's uncorrupt here. It's not talking about sexual purity. He's talking about uncorrupt, free from taint. Uh, Men are to pursue truth that will not decay or decompose. Uh, Our teaching is to be consistent and biblical in content. And Paul's addressing Titus here, but he's also addressing all the men here because he actually challenges them in Titus chapter 1, verse 14 to not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So this is for everybody here. This is the challenge. He's wrapped Titus in with that challenge. So he's calling all the men to believe pure doctrine and to live pure doctrine. Now, if you drive your car and your timing belt is off, what happens? It chugs along, correct? That's what pure doctrine does. It, it, if, it basically makes your timing belt of your life work really well. It goes smoothly. But if your purity and doctrine is off, it's going to affect the progress of your car, your momentum, your life, so to speak. And so, on the other hand, if the principles that you live by, again, are wrong, or they're diluted or impure you're going to lack that direction and power. And God wants men to passionately pursue untainted truth. All right, Many modern churches, not this church, has adopted this secular approach to not take a stand on anything. Have you noticed that? They don't take a stand on anything. So they don't offend. So everything is uncertain. Nothing is absolute. And weak men adopt the same compromise of truth. Now, we don't let our young men go, well, I haven't studied it yet. It's time for you to study it. It's time for you to come to conviction. It's time for you to go, I don't know where I stand on that issue. Let's get in and let's go for it. Let's figure it out. God wants men to be passionately pursuing untainted truth. No corruption, no spoiling, no leading astray. When you mix white paint, you just put a drop of black in there, it's tainted. When you add water to gasoline, it's diluted. It's the same with biblical truth. Doctrine must remain unmixed. It must be come out of the text. It must be clear and clean and true. When you add human wisdom, when you add business, when you add, worst of all, your ideas, that goes to me too, then you destroy the purity and power and effectiveness of it. It's, it's no longer God's Word. It's a distorted Word. And Jesus challenged us, didn't He? When He said in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 through 9, He said, This people honors Me with their lips, but their heart is what? Far away from Me. But in vain do they worship Me, teaching as doctrines what? The commands of men. So practically, Jesus is calling men to live what you learn, to behave what you believe avoid situations like obey the law son and you constantly speed now we have a freeway by our house that if you're not going 80 in the slow lane you're you're going to get killed so i don't know how you apply that here i'm not compromising i'm just telling you i don't want to die on the 15 freeway (laughs) 
I don't know. Or you say, listen in church, kids. You never take notes. You never discuss the sermon. Or let your mother decide. You know where that comes from? That comes from the Bible. The reversed standard version. Okay? Listen. God's called you to lead. Step up. Add to that practice of truth, if you can, move from devotionals to doctrine. From milk to meat. You know, a steady diet of junk food is going to be unhealthy for you, correct? Well, a steady diet of spiritual junk food is also going to be unhealthy for you. Uh, You need to move towards understanding the truths of Scripture. It's not like you don't have an opportunity at this church. This is one of the rare ones. And I want to take it a step further. This is how you lead. Again, I said it once before, 98% of male leadership is never do what I say, honey. It's, honey, let's do what Jesus says. Let's do what the Word says. That's spiritual leadership. 2% of that is we'll have to pray about it, work it out, because it's not explicit in the Scripture, and make a wise decision. 98% of it is let's do what the Bible says. And that's where you're to be in this process. Now, I want to take a look, if you would, spin over to Ephesians chapter 5, because I want to expand on this as we're laid the foundation for the Word leading our homes. And remember, men and wives, you're wanting to be one heart, one mind. Remember, you're so close to her that she's like your own body. You're one heart, one mind. But you're also functioning in your God-designed roles your god designed male and female roles are you getting it it's both one and uniqueness so the oneness and uniqueness is talked about in ephesians 5 and the starting place is all of what you had in ephesians which is basically die to self you got to die to self to operate the way god designed and husbands die to self by leading and loving and look at some obvious truths from Ephesians 5. So I would give you this point, which would be, be the responsible leader for your bride and for your family. And that would be uh, verse 23. Take a look at it. It says, The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Now, he states a fact here. It's in the indicative. So the husband is the head of the wife. Not could be, would be, should be. He is the head. The question is, are you a good one like Christ or are you one that's living in the flesh or living by your own desire or living by your own thoughts? Are you the responsible, write that word down, responsible, write down initiating, biblical direction, write down initiating, and write down that you're engaged, the word engaged, so responsible, initiating, engaged in the spiritual welfare of your home. That's headship. Headship means authority and direction that's what it means it's two words kafal it's very simple it means authority and submission uh, not submission and direction and therefore it's not a synonym for boss <laughs> are you with me uh, when you hear the word head it doesn't mean boss uh, you are to not be the lazy leader you're not to lead by google you're not to lead by your thoughts winging it passive but you are to be responsible, initiating biblical direction. Write down R-E-I. Headship means responsible, engaged, initiating. So understand, you're, you're in charge with someone to help. 
You're the authority with someone to submit to that authority. You're the provider with someone to provide for or people to provide for. Genesis 3, everything got messed up. There's total reversal, total distortion. But the truth of the New Testament is you're not the boss, you're not the dictator, you're not the infallible one, and you're not the, the one who's the superior. You love, you lead, you're responsible, you're engaged, you're initiator. And you're initiating, <clears throat> let's do what Christ says. It's not an employer-employee relationship where the husband gives a job description to his wife and she's the subordinate. That's not it. <clears throat> Headship is being like Christ. Jesus has a bride, the church, and husbands have a bride, and they are to treat their bride as the Lord treats His bride. Do you? Men, married is single. Let me spell it out for you. The husband needs to pursue their bride. You initiate. This is not found today in most marriages, but it is the husband's responsibility to keep the marriage fresh. Not the wife. Jesus doesn't sit back does he? And wait for you to pursue him. Does he? Come on. Good Reformed church like you, you're not going to say that, correct? Right? He pursues us. Can I hear an amen? That's what you do. You pursue. As the head, you pursue that relationship with your wife. Listen, husbands do damage when you're always deferring to your wives on parenting decisions, financial decisions, marriage decisions, and when you never take ownership of a marital conflict that's your responsibility. Uh, You're to set biblical direction. You might want to write that down. Christ-honoring direction. Under God's providence, you're the one dealing with issues. You're taking care of the future needs and responsibilities. Listen, your wife may bring up insurance and moving and saving and budgeting and kid problems and house needs, but you're setting the direction. She's going to be a lot more aware. I mean, just in a practical way. When my kids were really small, I'd come home and she goes, would you just kind of hang out with Matthew? Because he's right on the edge. All he needs is a little more encouragement and then you can deliver the needed encouragement to the bottom. Okay? And she's just waiting. She's setting me up. I got it. But she's like, he's been you know, testing me all day. You know, the, those little children, right? You understand they're sinnerlings, right? You understand that. Uh And then I would say, along with those other two challenges, I would add, husbands need to repent and restore first. Say, where do you get that? Did Christ wait to restore you to Himself? Did He wait for you to come to Him? No, you couldn't. Christ initiated. And that's part of what you're supposed to do if you're going to love your bride the way He loves His bride. You must be the first to humble yourself at an impasse and ask forgiveness in order to restore the relationship with Christ. This was life-changing to Don and Terry's story when all of a sudden he realized, I've got to set the pace here and make things right. you got to be that person. Um, is it okay if I'm honest uh, about personal stuff and failures? Okay. So, uh, first 10 years of marriage, I don't know what year it was, we had an argument. And it, I, I don't remember what it was about. I don't remember. I just remember that it was not good. You ever had one of those? You just go, this is not good. Things were said that shouldn't have been said, and it was just not good. Young, you know? And I'm thinking, okay, i got to make this right. This is my job to make this right. So I quietly, graciously, as she's laying in bed with covers over her head, I say, honey, we, you know, the Bible tells us we, we just can't let the sun go down on our anger. 
And she goes, it's already down. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm free to share that with you. Um, he told me that. But understand, we, 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 we recovered. It was fine. But interesting enough, it was my first attempt at being that initiator, and it blew up in my face, but we still kept doing it. And we got better at it. And in situations of marital strife, husbands need to initiate. You got to do it. In fact, which points to another major point, which would be under leader, you're also the sacrificial lover. That was leader, now lover. Husbands, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. The main emphasis of Ephesians 5, 22-33, obviously there's unique roles in the first part. There's being one in the second part. But something stands out, and that is there's only two commands in verses 22-33. to Only two. They're both directed to husbands, and they both say the same thing. Love your wife. There's no command for the wife to love her husband here. It's just husbands love your wives. In fact, husbands are exhorted to love their wives a third time in this text. So twice commanded, once exhorted in this text. The women are exhorted, but understand the emphasis here is love your wife. Present tense continual, non-optional command. It's ongoing. It's supernatural. The Spirit of God has got to be the one whose fruit is love working through you. It doesn't mean merely provision, not merely giving time, not merely giving attention, not merely fixing problems, giving yourself. Die to self. You love her more than sports, hobbies, more than your job, more than your kids, more than any person except for Christ. It's true. This is agape, sacrificial love, not attraction. It's not this, you know, how do you spell love? Two consonants, L and V. Two vowels, O and E. Two fools, you and me. No, no. <laughs> Above all, he says in 1 Peter 4, 8, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Wow, great marriage verse. Gifted men without love are merely annoying men. Knowledgeable men without love are merely arrogant men. Pious men without love are merely self-righteous men. I'm not certain if you've noticed this, but we're to be loving our wives. And women, have you noticed, like to be loved. Have you noticed that? I mean, go to a greeting card store. Is it primarily men or women milling around crying? I mean, come on. Women like to be loved. They're natural receivers of love. And only a woman who's been abused or neglected or harmed has a hard time receiving love. And that's why we have to be, as men, very careful. But he says, husband, love your wives. And that does include your heart. Uh, it does include your adoration. I adore my wife. I, I'm so blown away by the fact that God gave her to me when I had no discernment at all. Is she your preoccupation? Is she your delight? Does she show up in your conversation over just normal things? Is it more about in your marriage us and we or is it all about I and me? You know, you're not to be like the bachelor who put this ad in the paper. Uh, you'd appreciate that here in Bakersfield. Uh, it's Idaho bachelor. Wants wife. Must be interested in farming. And own a tractor. And then it says, please enclose picture of the tractor. Okay, that, he, you don't want to be that. Love your wife, not with if love. You know, I love you if you do this, if you do that. No, don't love her with because love. I love you because you do these things. That's so great. Love her with anyhow love. Anyhow love. 
I mean, don't feel like it. Is fast food okay when she's had a hard day? Do you clean up the sink after you've shaved? Are you unwilling to, you know, are willing to unball your socks? Are you willing to completely provide for your family so she can work at home, you know, at home? Have you ever planned a romantic getaway? Do you fix things that need repairing around the house? When's the last time you got a sitter, made a reservation, and just listened to her? Uh, when we're in a training center, uh, our guys, when we're investing into them, I just, just a little sidelight here. We actually train them in every element of their lives. There's nothing. If they say, I don't want you to talk about that with me, we're like, you're not in the training center. Everything's on the docket. One of the things we do in our second year of training, just a little side project, but it's really fun as we start talking about family and the priority of family and the priority of marriage uh, for men and ministry, etc. We make them go out with their wives. We don't tell the wives what they're doing. And they go out and their assignment is to say nothing about themselves to only talk about them and only ask them questions and only listen to what they say. And guys literally come back and they go, our marriage is different. I mean, they're just blown away. Because love, you know, when it's done that way, when it's just about them, it keeps our firmness from becoming hardness, our strength from becoming domineering. Uh, Love keeps our maturity gentle, our sound doctrine from becoming obstinate dogmatism, our right living from becoming smug self-righteousness. It's amazing what love does. So understand, here's the test. How willing are you to listen to your wife or serve your kids while you're watching the Chiefs, your team, in the Super Bowl? Right? That's the test. She comes to you and she's got a big need right there in the fourth quarter. Now, it's true. No godly woman in this room would ever interrupt her husband during the fourth quarter. Okay. <laughs> but how you lead is through sound doctrine. You say, Lord, we want to do what you want to do. And when you can't figure out what you want to do, you find out. You ask people. You've got godly men here. You've got a concordance. You've got a Bible. You dig it out. What does God want us to do? Ephesians 5.26 even adds this, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of the water of the Word. Sanctify means to set apart for special use. Husbands are to think of their spouses as God's special property on loan. And what he's saying here is that you're to fear God and fear nothing else. Your design for you is to set your wife apart as your most important ministry. Did you get that? Your most important ministry. More than your kids. You're to set her apart. Your target is to see her grow to be more like Christ. You do that by washing her in the Word of God, meaning you're bringing up and living what God thinks. This is why this theologically pure doctrine is so important. Every issue, every problem, every struggle, every future, every crisis, every blessing, what does the Bible say? So you say stuff like this. You initiate God's will. Honey, the Lord wants us to trust Him with this crisis. Let's pray. Dear God wants us to use our money as wise stewards, so let's make sure that we live by a workable budget and know how we're spending His money. How about I set up a budget, then let's talk about how to make it work for us. Sweetie, I think the Lord wants us to love those rotten people. Uh, Sugar, uh, let me take a more active role in disciplining and uh, discipling and spending time with Tommy. He needs a little fatherly attention right now. Baby, how about I watch the kids today so you can have some time with the Lord. Toots, We're at an impasse. So I want to apologize first for my attitude and my words. I know for a fact that I'm responsible to get us back on track here, and I know I contributed to this difficulty. Sanctification means you're concerned 
more concerned about your wife's spiritual growth as your own. It means treasuring and encouraging the relationship she has with the Lord just as much as your own. Ask her, do you believe that you are the most important person spiritually in my life? Listen, when it's a man is pure in doctrine, then Scripture becomes their compass, their filter, their food. Number four, socially. Men are to be dignified. Now, this is bad news for Chris. My Hawaiian grandpa name is literally, and I have a son in Hawaii, and I have two grandsons in Hawaii. So someone's got to go visit him, right? So anyway, but my Hawaiian grandpa name is Cuckoo. My wife is Tutu. Uh, and people will go, cuckoo, all oh, that fits. Um, and the sad thing is that I make funny faces, sing silly songs, do crazy experiments, I blow things up, I play with slime, I make water balloons. I want all three grandsons to know that I love Christ, I love His Word more than life itself, but I'm also a fun guy. Do I lack dignity? Scary thought for me. Probably true. The word dignified is almost impossible to act out in a game of charades because it's a blend of humility, courtesy, seriousness, and respectfulness. And the difficulty, though, doesn't make it any less important. In verse 7, the Greek word dignified is a quality of life, write it down, which inspires respect. Probably the easiest way to remember it. It inspires respect. A brief survey uh, survey of 1 Timothy 3 is elders, deacons, and deaconesses, or women who assist deacons, however you view that, is basically they're to be dignified. And Titus 2 tells us that dignity is a required quality for both older men and younger men. So it's all men, all ages. And dignified is the quality that commands respect, that earns the right to be heard. It makes you believable and it makes you seen as clearly a man of purpose. It it doesn't mean you don't smile. It doesn't mean you don't have a sense of humor. It doesn't mean you don't enjoy life. Being dignified is living with the constant awareness that you are Christ's ambassador. You hear the word dignitary dignified are you getting it you're his dignitary you take the lord and his word and his mission very seriously you don't take yourself seriously at all are you tracking with me you should be able to laugh at yourself you're not the issue it's christ that's the issue you live in the presence of god filled with the spirit So when you're watching TV and the referee makes an incredibly bad call that costs your team the game and the championship, do you scream at the TV or do you drop to your knees in attitude of prayer? (laughs) Bad illustration. I got got that. So uh, are you equally free to play with your kids and pray with your kids? Or as you have teenagers, can you joke around with them and talk seriously with them and they accept you in both roles? Uh, write these three words down. The three R's of dignity. dignity: Respectful, responsible, representative. Respectful, responsible, representative of Christ on earth. Now, certain translations include incorruptibility or sincerity in Titus 2, but they're not in the best text. So the fifth goal is number five, verbally men are to be sound in speech. Not merely mentally sensible, verbally example, theologically pure in doctrine, socially dignified, but you need to pursue the goal of being verbally sound in speech. Look what he says in verse 8. Took a look at it. Sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent might be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. We, we got today pastors who cuss. What is God's will for your talk? Well, you know what the Bible says about speech. Look at Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your... Come on, say it. 
mouth, only such a word as good for edification. Now watch this phrase. According to the need of the moment. So sometimes the best thing to do is not say anything until the moment is right. That it may give grace to those who hear. Don't allow any worthless word to come out of your mouth. Colossians 4, 6, even in reference to the unsaved, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so tasty there, so that it may, you may know how you should respond to each person. Your conversation on the patio, your hanging out with friends, your private conversations are to be so gracious that there's to be a sense of grace and Christ in the midst of that. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Wow. Proverbs 12.25, good words can make an uh, an anxious heart glad. Good words. Um, I remember some conversations with my dad and with my mom that set my life in a different direction. That's how powerful your words are, parents. It just, it was wonderful. But I also recall saying things that the moment I said them, I wish I could pull them back in. Anybody with me on this? You wish you hadn't said them. And sound is the word hagias, where we get the English word for hygiene, which is what I say to my wife every morning, hygiene. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about safe, clean words that are, verse 8, above reproach. You test them before they come out of your mouth. And that's what the Psalms and Proverbs say. I will, Psalm 39, verse 1, guard my mouth as with a muzzle. That's a pretty pointed picture, don't you think? Psalm 141, verse 3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Why? Ephesians 5, 4, there must be no filthiness, silly talk, or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. How do you guard your speech? Let me give you something. It's to depend on the Spirit and to depend, live by God's Word over time, develop the habit of, are you ready? Write it down, talking less and listening more. There's a reason why you have two ears and one mouth. There's a reason. If you keep talking, the Bible says you will sin. Proverbs 10, 19. When there are many words, transgression is what? Unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. The Bible even says, I love this, this is a life verse for me. If you remain silent, People will even think you're smart. Right? Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered what? Wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. Listen, you're in a conversation with Steve Swartz. You just keep nodding, and everybody's going to go, man, he's smart. Right? Yeah, you just keep nodding. Get it. Paul concludes with this challenge. Verse 8. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Our words reveal our hearts. Our speech is a big part of our witness, our leadership. And listen, men, your wives and your children are dramatically impacted by your words. Correct? Correct? I, I know one couple. I'm not saying this is the way to do it. But I know that in our house, we got to a point where if we... We're in the flesh. The conversation stopped. Because anytime you're in the flesh, you don't accomplish anything for the glory of God, right? I know one couple, older godly couple, they're still mentors of mine. And he just, if she wants to engage and she's upset, he will not answer her. And I know it's probably, I'm not recommending this. I'm just saying he will not say things to her when it's not the spirit. 
We as a church, our church, when you visit our church, if you flesh out in our church, we'll stop the conversation. And we'll say, you know what? If you're a Christian, you can be in the Spirit. And we're going to wait until you're in the Spirit so that we glorify God in that conversation. And we're not going to allow the flesh to, to dominate that conversation because it never is profitable. Are you with me on this? It's never good, ever. So understand, you need to figure out in your own life how you can then be in the Spirit in your conversation and when you're in the flesh, how to give yourself some time out. Don't speak in the flesh. It's bad. And you damage people, right? Remember that phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but what? Names will never hurt me? That's a lie right out of the pit of hell. Because bones can be fixed stronger than ever before, but words can destroy. We have to be careful. That's sound in speech. This is why it's here, guys. We've got to work at that. And I'm, I'm not talking to you as somebody who, who did this perfectly. I'm talking about somebody who's learning this and learning it more and more and more and wanting to pass on what we've learned the hard way. Are you, are you with me on this? But the Bible's clear. Sound speech. This is your leadership. So His design for men and women is perfect and you can taste of His blessing. Anytime He commands you, He can enable you in this area. You can make progress here. You're not going to get it all down, but you can make progress. So letter A, godly men take the lead. Take the lead. Uh, humbly, graciously, you're one heart, one mind. You're exercising the Lord's leadership. You want Christ to rule your home, not you. And so you want to be a blessing to that family and not a dictator and, and not some sort of do what I say kind of thing. You want to do what the Lord wants. And, and I would say, let her be godly men become pure in doctrine. You, you want to lead through the word. You want to study the word. You want to apply the word. You want to be in accountability and discipleship so that you're working that out. What happened in, when we first began to disciple as a church, it was amazing. Guys were saying, I, I just, I, I, I'm not leading the right way. I'm not loving my wife. I'm impatient with my children. And they began to pray for one another and everything changed. They knew what the Word said, but now they were going, we're going to hold each other accountable lovingly, not perfectly. We're not going to talk about each other. We're just going to help each other. Sometimes it meant that certain men called each other every day as they're dealing with an issue. Because they said, we want to help one another grow to be more like what? Jesus Christ. Till Christ, Galatians 4.19, is formed in you. And we're about that process. But, last and most importantly, if you're going to be a godly man, a godly woman, you have to be in Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? You have to realize that God provided a way for us to be transformed. Totally made new. And Christ the God-man became the substitute, bore our sin upon Himself, covered us in His righteousness when we believe Him and trust in Him and put our life in His hands and we say by faith and repentance we want to be all that You want us to be because He's regenerated us and now He changed our hearts in such a way that now we can follow Him and live for Him. And it's a total, tra it's not an external thing, it's an internal thing and now you're different. And the only way that you will ever ever pull this off is you got to be in Christ and you got to be filled with the spirit so that you can be all that God desires you to be and to become that man that you never thought you could become for God's glory. Amen.
Heavenly Father, thank you again for these men and these ladies. We pray, Father, that we might become the men and women you want us to be. We'll give you all the glory for what you do. Thank you for this opportunity. We pray that it would be really, truly life-changing for us. And may we enjoy our wonderful fellowship at lunch. And may there be wonderful steps made in how we pleasing you by our, our dependent obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.